0: Thanks Ryan. Just getting wired up with a new mic for the first time. This is exciting. There's a lot of new things happening for me right now. Um, for a start, um, this is my first time preaching off the, off the back end of a cold. Um, so I get to do the thing where I come up and say, look, um, I've been sick for a little while, so uh, just, just take account of that when you're listening to what I'm saying. But um, I'm not actually telling you that so that you can lower your expectations. I actually think it's working for me. It's knocked my, my voice down about two or three octaves. So I've got kind of more gravitas happening now. It's, kind of, it's fun. I've been like driving along I'm going, the next station is Maruka. <laughs> um, we're going through a, a series right now. Um, called The God Who Is There, and I am blessed and given the wonderful opportunity to talk about The God Who Loves, and so we're jumping into John 3.16, so I'm going to pray, if you will bow your heads with me. Father God, we gather here today to learn more about you, to praise you, and to celebrate your love. Please uh, be with me, Lord, as I speak about your love, help me to represent it well. And, uh, and open the hearts here to the truth of your gospel that's, that's laid plain to us and made so bright and so brilliant in John's words written down. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Hmm. Oh, incidentally, um, one quick note before I jump into that. This uh, $25 Regent Street purple shirt, who wore it better, me or Pastor Darrell? Um... You can write down your vote on the yellow slip. Um, make sure you write your name on it, or that vote will be discounted. <laughs> so, But seriously, there is a certain kind of person in this world for whom, for whom uh, it's possible to derive satisfaction from what frustrates everyone else. This guy or this girl exists somewhere in everyone's family or social circle. I am this guy. You might be this guy. But everyone else knows you as the person who has to do everything the hard way. We're the ones who grew up watching our feet when we walk down the footpath going, don't step on the crack or you'll fall and break your back. And then when that was too easy, you add, don't step on the line or you'll fall and break your spine and we continue to add additional rules, suddenly, maybe you can only step on the lines, or maybe only on the the every second paver, only the black tiles in the kitchen. Or my personal favorite, you declare the entire floor to in fact be molten lava, and you're only allowed to cross it on cushions or furniture. Most people grow out of this. Most people. Hardway guys and hardway girls do not. Once they have saved their back by avoiding every crack, well, they'll find they miss the challenge of the games that they now lack. Well, In hiking terms, you'd say they venture off the beaten track. <laughs> For skiers and snowboarders, they go straight to every black diamond track that they can hack. Once the skis are off the rack and they've grabbed themselves a snack from their billabong backpack, I didn't have to rhyme that. But it was harder, so I did. (laughs) Because I'm a hard way guy. For hard way people, every computer game must be played on hard mode. If we're helping pack up after a church service or function, we don't always lift a stack of chairs just at the limit of what we can possibly carry. But if we do, it's because we've seen someone hefting four and thought, I reckon I can do five. So when I started studying scripture formally and learned how to preach a little bit and learned my responsibility in handling the word of God is to expose the text and talk about how the father's plan to send his son is present in every chapter, I'm naturally drawn towards what I'd like to call the harder parts. In my first year at Queensland Theological College, I happened to overhear a conversation between some veteran preachers and some new students. Any idea what passage you're going to preach for your assessment, they say? try psalm 88 another one says and they have that in-joke laugh that old hands get when they're talking to newbies (laughs) this guy so i preached on psalm 88 in my assessment because some guys who weren't even talking to me implied that it was in some way hard mode for preaching and for one of the most depressing parts of the bible i think i did pretty well even if i do say so myself but then there are passages like John 3.16 where the significance of Jesus just explodes off the page. It's the most iconic statement of the person, purpose and person of Jesus in Scripture. It's spoken by Jesus. It mentions Jesus. It's a passage that could only be more Jesus-y if you spelled it out with hot cross buns or wrote it in poppy seeds on top of a loaf of communion bread. All of the Jesus-y versions in the Gospel are there, but this one is the jesus in fact, a big chunk of the youth here tonight have probably memorized it in the form of a song. Yeah, the world that. You a... yeah, that. Um, <laughs> it could be the most memorized verse in all of Sunday schooldom. So, is there really anything left? Shall we just close in prayer? God loved the world, gave only Son, believe in Him, gain eternal life. Message God loves you. Application. Believe in Him. Expectation. Get eternal life. Done. Or is there more locked up in these words that we haven't yet appreciated? Is there something more in this most rehearsed verse? Should we in turn go over it again? That is, reverse and re-traverse. I think there is. We're talking today about the God who loves, and I think such a statement is not as simple and straightforward as it first appears. Now, Don Carson wrote the book, The God Who Is There, and that's the sermon series, or the book upon which this sermon series is loosely structured. He points out in that chapter, quite correctly, that when we talk about God's love, God's love is the attribute of God the world is most comfortable accepting. People outside the church are pretty ready to accept that God loves them. Lots of people will say they don't know lots about God, but if they know one thing, he's loving. And why wouldn't he be loving? Look at yourselves. They're pretty great. This is, after all, in line with most of our human experience with love. We love each other because we are so lovable. Love in humans is a passion, and I mean that in the theological sense of the word. See, typically we use the word passion to describe something we feel strongly about, A strong feeling is a passion, a measure of strength to that commitment, to that affection. But technically speaking, a passion is something else than that. A passion is something triggered in you by something outside of you. You encounter someone who is lovable. That causes your heart to react, and you start to love them. That's how love works, as a passion in our experience. Example. Every boyfriend and girlfriend, man and wife combination in history, shares a dark secret. And I'm going to throw some light on it now. Sorry. Sometimes she may say in an emotional moment, he's just perfect. And he might claim that every action she takes fills him with joy. In the words of the great theologian Sting, lead singer of the police, every little thing she does is magic. Isn't that sweet? but it's a lie. The truth is, maybe he's almost perfect. Most of the stuff they do might be lovable. Maybe four times out of five, the thing she does is magic. And one time out of five, it is not magic. It's barely even acceptable. But because the rest of that person is lovable, we look past it. We say, honey, you're almost perfect. I cannot stand the person you become when you are around your friends, but I love you anyway. Or, the way you worry about the most ridiculous things kills me, but I love you anyway. Or, you have no taste in music, but I love you anyway. We find people lovable, so we love them anyway. But God does not say to us in the Bible, You know, you're so sinful, but you're so lovable, I'm just gonna love you anyway. God is able to love us in a way that does not rely on passion. God loves in a way that is not natural to humans. We aren't so lovable, He can't help but love us. He simply chooses to love us, even though in our sinfulness we are not lovable. God does not love us because we are lovable, he loves us because he chooses to love us. This is the first thing to take away from this most studied passage. It is astonishing that God loves us. And we can know that this is the way that God so loved the world, because it's the kind of love that Jesus encourages. If we hop over to Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, for a moment, chapter 5, verse 43. Matthew 5, 43 in the sermon on the mount when jesus is giving instructions on how to love he says you have heard it said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy makes sense love your neighbor because your neighbor is lovable hate your enemy because your enemy is hateable right but i say to you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven love your enemies jesus says so that you may be sons of your father, so that you may be like God who loves and like in the way of God when he loves people from within himself. That is a key discipline to being a follower of Christ, the ability to love someone who you have no reason to love. If someone hates you, You're perfectly within your natural rights and responses to hate them back. It's perfectly natural as a response to hate people who are hateable. But God, who loved us when we were still his enemies, asks us to go above and beyond that. He asks us to love those who are not lovable. It is this astonishing love that God uses to build his kingdom. So, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God chose to love us and the measure of God's love for us is Jesus. That's the second thing to take away from this most memorized verse. The measure of God's love for us is Jesus. It is possible to oversimplify what Jesus did in a way that leaves us open for simple objections. Jesus died for our sake and rose again on the third day to deliver us from sin and death correct it is possible for us to get lost in the agony of the cross and diminish its purpose it is possible to see only what the cross is and not what it does Jesus died for you but if that was the end of the story he wouldn't be alone in that category in three weeks time we'll celebrate Anzac Day and on that day we'll remember the sacrifices that our ancestors who died fighting for this country made If you tick the little organ donor box on your driver's license, if you're fortunate enough to have one yet, youth, then at some point it's reasonably likely that with your death, you will save a life. Now these examples sure aren't of people specifically dying and giving up their lives for us, but a little closer to home. I have to believe that every mother and father in this room has had to entertain the terrible thought, what would I do if something or someone threatened my children? And I have to believe that the answer to that question is, I would die before I let harm come to them. Laying down a life is not unheard of in human experience. Jesus was not the first person to die for those he loved. And if we tell his story that way, with his death as the only feature, all we do is confuse people. I've had these conversations. I've told people that Jesus died and rose again on the third day, and their response is, Okay, but the death kind of loses its impact if he rises again, doesn't it? I mean, if I could pay off my student loans by dying and rising again in three days, I'd seriously consider it. And this bears some consideration. Why should God giving his son compel us at all? I'd like to suggest that the price of the cross and the value of the cross are both important to understand and often conflated. The price of the cross is what was paid on our behalf. The value of the cross is what it bought. The price of the cross was Jesus' suffering and death. There is a spiritual dimension to this as well. If you read the account of Jesus suffering his inner turmoil in the garden of Gethsemane, you read him saying, My soul is sorrowful even unto death. The way he cries out to his father during the pain separation on the cross and the nature of spiritually absorbing the father's wrath against the sin of the world, we cannot understand. So there is a way in which Jesus' suffering is unique in all of history. But in my experience, the nature of that price of the cross is something we come to understand and appreciate after we've devoted our lives to God. It's taught and conveyed over time by the Holy Spirit. It's the value of the cross, that whoever so believes in him shall not perish but gain eternal life, that must be grasped first. Suppose a friend gives you that rarest and most precious of Christian gifts, a Kurong gift card to the value of $100. Just exceptional. What a range of Bibles, books, and the latest Christian artists all in one convenient location. (laughs) That's a pretty sweet gift. Most of us could find a use for such a gift, and $100 is no small price. So we'd be quite appreciative indeed. Now suppose instead... You're not doing very well. You're just able to cover the rent and the bills this week, but there's no money left over for fuel to get to work or food to keep you going. And you're looking around your house for something you can sell or give up to make a difference. And then a friend gives you $100. How much more grateful for that gift are you? Not because it had a higher price, it cost the same as the Courant card, but its value was so much more because you needed it so much more because of how badly you required it, that is the difference between the price and value. Now suppose that gift was given to you not by someone you called a friend, but by someone you can't stand, someone you've probably treated terribly until now. How do you react? The first instinct is probably to say, no, I don't need your help. But pretty soon you have to accept that, yes, you do need their help. And unless you're so proud you would rather starve than take that free gift, you'll accept it and the cocktail of self-disgust and gratitude that comes with it. It's an act we know as swallowing of pride. Now, keep in mind that Christ's death and resurrection did not just buy another week away from financial collapse. He bought infinitely more. He took away an eternity of suffering and distance from God and gave an eternity of joy and distance from death. That's two eternities of value in the cross for whosoever believes in him. And not only did he pay the price for a gift of such tremendous value, but he did it for us even though we didn't know him, we certainly didn't love him, and in fact we sinned against him and treated him as our enemy. The apostle Paul says this in the book of Romans, chapter five, verses seven and eight. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The measure of God's love for us is Jesus. So, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but gain eternal life. Now we're talking about the purpose of God's love. We're talking about the action he took in sending Jesus. Whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The purpose of God's love is that we might have eternal life. It's right there. Verses 317 and 318, right after John 316. Go on to repeat God's purpose in Jesus' death and resurrection. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whosoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. There is a somewhat apocryphal or mythical story well it's half myth anyway about Vincent van Gogh one of the most celebrated artists of the 19th century that's paint artist not artist Um, in this story the passionate and deeply troubled van Gogh is contending with another artist for the affection of a woman and in a moment of let's call it inspiration he slices off his left ear and wraps it up in cloth and marches over to her let's call it place of work and gives her this gift as a gift of love i can only imagine it went badly the conversation is not recorded i must assume it went something like good heavens man why would you cut off your ear because i love you and then he was arrested that part's historically accurate he was taken away by police after that Now there's a popular image of God as this hopeless romantic so in love with humanity and his creation that he is driven to the extravagant sacrifice of the cross to regain her from sin. We must take caution not to look at Christ's death like this explosive act of God's love displayed so we might see it and be stunned and turn back to him. There's more to it than that. The purpose of God's love in sending Jesus was that we might have life It was a meaningful act to overcome the consequences of sin. These verses tell us Jesus did not come into the world to condemn anyone. In fact, the truth is, everyone was already condemned when he got there. They were condemned before he showed up by being enemies of God, by turning towards their sin. And the means by which we come to enjoy this life is faith. How do we not perish but gain eternal life? Believe in Jesus as the Son of God. So what does it mean to have faith and believe in the Son of God? Suppose for a moment that you've received that most dignified of this country's honors, an audition with Australia's Got Talent. Now this is your fantasy, not mine, so you can be singing or dancing or juggling, that part's not important. But whatever it is, you've practiced your heart out and you're ready to go in there, stun the crowd, woo the nation, and walk away with the prize. And let's say you invite a group of friends who have been so supportive, saying to you, we can't wait to see you out there. We have so much faith in you. We really believe you have what it takes to win this thing. But when you go out there in front of the gaze of a critical audience and the grim stare of Kyle Sandylands, you see that despite all that was said, all that's there to receive you are a bunch of chairs with the reserved for special guest sign on them. Do you really think they believed in you? Did they really have the faith they claimed to? Belief and faith themselves are not actions, but they imply that you can expect a certain amount of action from someone who has faith and does believe. If they really believed and had faith in you, surely they would have come along to celebrate with you the victory that they knew was coming. Surely if they really believed that you had the right stuff, they would have shown up in support because that's the expected action of a friend who believes in you. In fact, Jesus tells this story too, more or less. In Matthew chapter 25, the story of the ten virgins, the parable there uh, has, roughly speaking, the ten virgins waiting to meet their bridegroom. They're all carrying these ceremonial lamps, but only half of them bring any oil for the lamps. The first five who came with the oil are allowed into the reception, but by the time the other five are finished scrambling around looking for oil after the bridegroom's arrived, they're locked out. They knock and they ask to be let in, and the bridegroom says, I don't know you. Does he need the lamp so much that their failure has cost them their chance to enter? No. But it's not hard to see which five really were interested in meeting the bridegroom who were really faithfully committed to waiting for him and which five were really just kind of there, maybe liking the idea, but certainly not faithfully committed to it. So what should we expect from someone who has faith in God's only begotten son? Surely you'd expect this to be a big deal. We're talking about God. He's a couple of steps above Kyle Sandylands. Faith in the son of God should move you to awe. It moves you to worship. It moves you to desire to know more about him. To gather with his people, to be like him. Over time, that faith is key to learning to love like he loves. Just as he said, to be like sons and daughters of the Father and to love those who hate you. And that faith will drive you out of gratitude for God's love and compassion for other people to spread the message of the cross. Friends, these few verses contain the whole gospel. The way that God loves us is astonishing. The measure of that love for us is Jesus. The purpose of God's love is sending his son, is to take away our sin and give us eternal life. And the way that we claim that offered life is through having faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. I'm going to pray. Lord, thank you for choosing to love us. You could have left us in our sin, but you chose to send your son to die on the cross so that we could, by faith, believe in his name and receive forgiveness of our sins and receive eternal life. Help us live out our faith, O Lord. Teach us how to love like you love, not for our own sake, so that we might become more like your son.